Welcome to the Ridge. Go ahead and have a seat. As you uh, find your way to uh, your chair, if you would, turn in your Bibles or in the uh, chair in front of you, there's a Bible, to Luke chapter 12. We're going to be changing things up a little bit today. Uh, I'm David Bird, the mission pastor here. Pastor Jerry's on vacation. And uh, so um, this 34 verses that Jerry assigned to me is, is pretty long. But don't worry, half of it's just going to be illustrative material. But the first part of this is some very serious words from Jesus. And so I'm going to do like half the sermon. And then we're going to pause and hopefully our hearts will be prepared for communion. And then after communion, don't get all excited. It's time to go. Because um, we're going to come back and I'm hoping uh, some worship songs are going to be very meaningful to us. And then I'm going to finish up the sermon, okay? But we'll still be out 11, a little after, all right? So no, no problem there. But uh, some people are going to come in late. And this is not to be punitive toward them. But as they come in, they're going to go, what in the world is going on? So just tell them, okay, David changed things up today. And most of the people who typically come in late got forewarned and they're here. So very good uh, for, for being on time and uh, being part of the, the change process. So... Luke chapter 12, here we go. Man, have you ever been at a dinner meal where two adults were in verbal conflict, and I mean, they're just going at it? I want you to picture that in your mind for a moment, because that's the context that we're coming into. Uh, if you go back uh, this afternoon, or if you get bored this morning, go back and read the last few verses of chapter 11. Jesus went to the home of a Pharisee for a meal. And Jesus did not do the ceremonial washing that Pharisees thought holy people did. Jesus just came in unwashed, sat down, was ready to eat. And this Pharisee is a little indignant about it. And he judges Jesus for not doing it. And Jesus, I mean, he just lights into this Pharisee. He blasts him. And they're just going at it. And if you and I had been at the meal, or at least if I had been at the meal, I'd have been... Head down, looking at my plate, going, oh boy, this is not going to turn out good. This is awkward. And Jesus goes into this uncomfortable series of woes or curses against the religious leaders because of their hypocrisy. So that's what we're walking into in chapter 12. And as we do communion in the middle, and as we worship more, and as we finish up on our confession of Jesus as the Son of God, I'm hoping this movement's going to make sense to you. So we come to chapter 12, verse 1. Under these circumstances, what circumstances? <laughs> this dinner party <laughs> uh, where, where fireworks were just going on. After so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were stepping on one another, and he begins saying to his disciples first, this message is first of all to the disciples of Jesus Christ. And then to everybody else. But he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I mean, Jesus is still on this subject. He's not letting it go. Hypocrisy is the main thing Jesus wanted his disciples to avoid. He didn't want us to catch this spirit of hypocrisy, which is the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, all of our ladies know what Leaven is yeast. Men, we're not bakers necessarily, but, but basically, leaven, it, it, it's a fungus. 
I don't know if he's calling them fungi or not, but, you know, it, it, it's a fungus. And if you mix it with bread dough, it creates gas <laughs> and causes the bread to rise. So if you don't want your bread to rise, you don't want the dough anywhere near leaven because it just spreads like an infection. Just a little bit will taint the whole batch of bread. Now, to chase a, a, a rabbit here for a little bit, you and I live in a world and culture, there's always some leaven of evil working its way through the world. And it changes about every two or three years. You know, right now, it, it's the transsexual movement. I mean, you get a little incident over here and a little incident over here, and all of a sudden, boom, it's everywhere. Now, before you get all self-righteous thinking, well, that's not one of my sins. I'm not engaged in that particular popular cultural sin. Notice that Jesus calls out all of us, our hypocrisies, maybe you and me, for plain religion, looking good on the outside, having no real intention of having spiritual transformation. All of that is very repulsive to God. So this, these are very stern words in verses 2 and 3. But there is not anything covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you said in the dark will be heard in the light. Whatever you've whispered in the inner rooms will be pronounced upon the housetops. I love the way Eugene Peterson says this in the message. Watch yourselves carefully so you don't get contaminated with the Pharisee yeast, Pharisee phoniness. You can't keep your true self hidden forever. Before long, you'll be exposed. You can't hide behind a religious mask forever. Sooner or later, the mask will slip and your true face will be known. You can't whisper one thing in private and preach the opposite in public. The day's coming when those whispers will be, will be repeated all over town. Man, you think the scrutiny of the press is tough in today's world. Wait until you're scrutinized by God himself. You think of anyone running for political office these days or being confirmed as a judge and everything in their past is going to be brought out. It's going to be twisted. All the dark secrets, all the private comments they've had, they're going to be sought out by the opposition in order to destroy them. Now, we do have an enemy who's always bringing up our past failures and our sins. And that's kind of another message. We've got to fight Satan on those terms. Because it's all been covered by the blood of Jesus on the cross if you're born again. But this deliberate hiding of our sin, this hypocrisy, it puts us in the hands of an angry God. These next few verses, Jesus says, I say to you, my friends. And he's not talking to everyone. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to us today if we claim to be believers. I say to you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body. Because we're going to talk about persecution for our faith in just a moment. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do. But I will warn you to whom to fear. Fear the one. Notice that is a capital O. Fear the one 
who after he is killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now this is not talking about Satan. This is talking about God himself. That's why that O is capitalized. Jesus is saying, don't fear the Pharisees who are going to persecute you, maybe even kill some of you as they're going to kill me. Don't let that fear drive you. But fear God to whom you will give an account for your life. These are scary words to me when I'm studying it. And I think one of the sources of hypocrisy in my life, probably yours, is our fear of man. Fear of what they're going to think of us. Because we want everyone to like us. We want to think well of us. So we put on our little hypocrisy mask. We, we act a certain way in church because we don't want people to think you know, ill of us. We act that way at church. We uh, do something at work. We do it to get a promotion. We pretend to be better than we really are. And it might get us out of a little persecution or even fool people. But man, that's a misplaced fear. Man's not the one we need to fear. It's Almighty God. And this is why God hates hypocrisy. If you don't get anything else, I want you to get this this morning. Duplicity in our life, it deals with our problem of sin by downplaying it and covering it up and continuing to do it in secret thinking no one will ever know. Hypocrisy does not adequately understand the seriousness of our sin, how pervasive it is in our hearts, and it attempts to deal with our sin by ignoring it, covering it up, rationalizing it, minimizing it, hiding it, and then putting on a good exterior so that others can't see it. Thereby, hypocrisy thinks it's dealt with our problem of sin. Jesus wants us to confess the severity of our sin. He wants us to know we cannot cover it up. And we cannot atone for it. Hypocrisy undermines the grace of God, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus alone can forgive us of our sins as we repent and follow him. And we need to fear falling into the hands of God in an unrepentant state, a hypocritical state, trying to cover up our sin before men rather than confessing it before God. And I think we'd all agree it's so easy to slip into patterns of playing games with God and then putting on a good appearance when we know in our heart that there are desires that are greater than our desire for God. There are things more important than the importance of God in our life. And if that's where you are today, I beg you, don't play that game. Let's just own up to the fact that our sin is far worse than we've ever admitted. Let's own up to the fact that it's far more pervasive than we've ever admitted. It is absolutely indefensible before God. And it is so bad we all deserve to be cast into hell save for the grace and mercy of the cross. You know, Jesus knows my sin better than I do. And even as I confess my sin and start 
right in here. Jesus can catalog my sin better than I can. But one by one, he died for the sins of David Bird, and he died for yours. And when I confess my sin, I see Jesus on that cross saying, Father, I want to bear that sin. And I want to bear that sin. Oh, he did it again. I'm going to, oh, three times. Four, oh, Lord, we got a pattern here. We got a break. Oh, here's a new sin. But Lord, I want to take that cross and I want to bear that sin. So let's stop trying to, to put up the good front and just give it a rest and confess. Because if we fear man and their expectations of us will be a slave to fear. But if you fear God being in an unrepentant state, you've got nothing else to fear. The problem with the Pharisees, they pretended to fear God, but they cared more about what other people thought of them. Jesus is saying, don't live like that. Don't be afraid of those who can take your life. Be concerned with the one who has the power to cast our destiny eternal destiny into hell I think Jesus offers two interesting encouragements and I realize I have a very warped sense of humor my wife gets on me for that from time to time but this is serious but I see some comedy in it I think Jesus is saying cheer up they can only kill you Cheer up. All they can do is kill you. And he even uses hell, I think, kind of as an encouragement, you know. Cheer up. Only God can cast you into hell. Satan cannot cast you into hell. He can lead you on the path, but our sovereign God and judge is the only one who has authority to cast a soul into hell. Cheer up. Follow me. Now this is emphasized later in the chapter. I'm going to go through these very quickly. Verses 13 through 21. Let me read them for you. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus. Teacher tell my brother to divide my family inheritance with me. And he said to him. Man who appointed me a judge and arbitrator over you. The things of this world. There's other things. Eternal things we need to be worried about. And he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of every form of greed. For not even when one has abundance does life consist of his possessions. Greed and possessions have a way of making us think that we don't need God. Just like hypocrisy. We covered up. I don't need, I've dealt with my sin. I don't need God. I've got all this good stuff. I don't need God. As many of us are, are working through Dave Ramsey and financial freedom and, and we're getting out of debt and we're starting to build up, you know, six months of, of disaster funds and, and all those things, it's great. But there is a temptation to think, I got it made now. I got this covered. Don't ever get like that because the purpose of having is to foster a generous spirit. We have so that we can give. And then he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning with himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, well, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. 
And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Just, just take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, you fool. You missed it. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you've prepared? And so is a man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Possessions may make you look very good on the outside, just like hypocrisy. But God searches the heart. And our greed will be shouted from the rooftops and seen for what it is, self-absorption. So don't play charades with God. Don't cover up your sin with hypocrisy or possessions. Don't live as if you don't need God. Fear God in deep respect and awe. What a great transition. Just like that, Jesus moves from fearing God in an unrepentant state to when we are called on to witness for him. We're not to fear man. Kill the body. But as we confess Christ before men, he confesses us before the angels as we're going to sing. And we're not a slave to fear of talking to others about Jesus Christ. So with that, we're going to move into this next few verses. What does it mean to fear God but no longer be a slave to fear? Jesus laid out this extreme displeasure that God has toward hypocrisy, hypocrisy, but he quickly moves to how much God cares for his people. Verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them's forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. You're more valuable to God than any flock of little birds that you can buy five for two cents. You've been brought into a saving relationship through the blood of Jesus Christ. He's reminding you and me that there is no enemy who can undo what the Father's loving care has done for us. You're valuable to God. And if you look down in verses 27 through 34, he gives us illustrations of it. He said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you're going to eat, nor your body, what you're going to put on. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom or barn like the other fellow we read about. They're going to build bigger ones. And yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory was clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today, tomorrow thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, O men of little faith? So do not seek what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. Don't keep worrying for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your heavenly Father knows you need these things. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So do not be afraid, little flock. Your Father has 
chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. I love Dave Ramsey. But the reason you get out of debt and you build up stuff is so that you can be generous. You live like no one else so you can live like no one else. You live like no one else so you can give like no one else. You see, the opposite of greed is generosity. Generosity keeps us dependent upon God no matter how much we have in the bank. Because each day we get up and we start praying, Lord, you've given me much. Who can I bless? Who can I share with? And the best time to start a spirit of generosity is when you're poor. And it gets better and better and better. Generosity says, I've really got enough, so much I can share with other people. And as we share our resources with other people, we are to share the message of salvation as well. You do both. You don't do one and not the other. They both go hand in hand. You matter to God. So the next question to consider is, does God matter to you? And that's addressed in these final verses that I want to talk about in verses 8 through 12. So go back as we get that transition from being a hypocrite to living like God. He says, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men... The Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you're going to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. What does our mouth say about God to other people? We are called upon this absolute fidelity to the Lord Jesus Christ to share him with other people. And I love passages like these because, again, it talks about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ being the only way to salvation. Because if we confess him before men, he has the authority to confess us before the angels of judgment. Very powerful statement here about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Now, we used to live in a culture that was strongly influenced by Christ and his church. Some of you are as old as I am. Not many of you, but some of you. And you remember in school, we actually pray in school. Chimes would ring before lunch. We'd all say a prayer. We'd recite Ten Commandments. It was just there. Those days are long gone. But it's not the fault of government or Supreme Courts or anyone else. The reason our culture has drifted is not because of those decisions. It's because the church has failed to be the church. We are content being hypocrites. To confess Jesus Christ before others. And let me tell you, we are rapidly becoming 
a culture where this is going to be harder for us. And the temptation to be silent is going to be stronger than ever before. Because if you stand up for Jesus at school or at work, some are going to consider you a bigot. Because you don't fall in line with all the other things the world is into. If you confess Jesus before men, you're going to be viewed as narrow-minded. Some are going to say, you're hateful. You're going to be viewed as discriminatory. But we must hold firm our profession of faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the only way to heaven. Verse 10 is the mention of something that some have called the unpardonable sin. If you speak a word against the Son of Man, that will be forgiven. But you speak or blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, that will not be forgiven. Maybe you've heard a sermon on the unpardonable sin. Let me give you a quick refresher course in the few minutes we have left. What does the Holy Spirit do? Holy Spirit's job is to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgments to come. It's the Holy Spirit's job to testify of the person, work, and claims of Jesus Christ. I can share the way of salvation with someone, but the Holy Spirit's got to bring that home in their heart. Got to make it sense to them, make them want to have it. The Holy Spirit testifies that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of the living God. He's the Savior. He's the only way to salvation. Do people reject Jesus sometimes and then later converted to faith? Yes, happens all the time. We have examples in the scripture. A Pharisee by the name of Saul, Paul, comes to faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit converted him. Had he blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? Apparently not. Had he said bad things about Jesus? Oh yeah. Had he killed other Christians? Oh yes he had. But he was saved. The Bible has examples of people who rejected Jesus but then came to him. But if we persist in rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit, of the claims of Jesus Christ, there remains no possibility for the forgiveness of our sin. Because there's only one way to be forgiven. That's through Jesus Christ. Now sometimes I meet people who wonder if they've committed the unpardonable sin. And their story usually goes something like this. They made some sort of a profession of faith in Jesus as a child or teenager. But then they went crazy in their teenage years or their college years. And then they've had these significant points in their adult life where they stumbled along the way they've committed grievous sins and they wonder have I committed the unpardonable sin will God take me back well, let me give you a couple of words of encouragement one of the great evidences that you have not committed the unpardonable sin is that you're worried you've committed the unpardonable sin that's the Holy Spirit stirring in you. But the people who aren't concerned and continue to be vitriolic toward the things of Christ, those are the ones who are in danger of committing an unpardonable sin against the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we get in to spiritual encounters and we go silent. We don't give a witness when we should. We deny Christ. 
Is that unpardonable? No. Peter denied Jesus, not once, three times. He was restored to his relationship with Jesus Christ. So let that be an encouragement to be restored. But Jesus is talking about persecution in cultural times when it's going to be hard to be a believer to give the spoken word that Jesus is the only way. You're going to be criticized for being a believer. And in other parts of the world, they are actually executed for being a believer. But when you get to those moments, don't worry about what you're going to say or have a, a canned speech ready to go. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say in those times of need. I've been uh, doing some discipleship training with another church. And uh, it involves going out knocking on doors. I hate knocking on doors. I fear. God, I don't know what the response. Now, they've made it fairly simple because you knock on the door and you just say, Hey, we're here loving on the community. Is there any way we can pray for you? Now, some people know I'm good. They'll hide behind the door, you know. And you just can kind of say, Hey, can I just say a general blessing on you? And you say something, and you just you leave. Other people actually walk on the porch. Say, yeah, you can pray about this with me. And you can pray about those things. And then after the prayer, we give about a, just a 15-second testimony. There was a time in my life where I was very fearful. I had no hope, but I met Jesus Christ as my Savior. Now I have a life of purpose. Have you had, ever had an experience like that? And then it's kind of a red light, green light, you know, yellow light. If they're still open, then you can actually share the gospel with them. But let me tell you what. Every time you get to that point after praying and you think you should take it a step further, you will get this lump in your throat. I used to call it the five seconds of terror. I just call it five seconds of fear. Am I going to say something? Or am I going to shy away? Now, you may be much better at this than I am. But as old as I am, and as often as I've shared the gospel with people, I still get that moment. Am I going to confess him before men? Or am I going to back away from this thing? You sent missionaries from this church to Serbia and France. And when I was over in France uh, back in June, I had on my heart to share with uh, Dr. Jean Pouget. He's been a friend for nine years. He and his family actually came over and stayed at our home last fall for about four days. I don't know why he likes me. He's not a believer. We have nothing in common. He likes jumping off of mountains in those squirrel suits, you know. I prefer to have my feet on the ground with a golf club or something like that, you know. I don't know why he likes me. But when we went to France, he said, you need to come stay with me for a weekend. Well, the schedule was, you know, I couldn't. But we were able, Brent and I went down and spent one night with he and his family. 
And the next morning, he took us to his childhood home and, and uh, showing us a, one of the many ancient cities in Europe. Uh, used to be a silver mining town. It's got the moat around it and the one bridge and the gateway into it and the castle on the hill and a Catholic church. So we're about to go into this Catholic church. Okay, here's a chance. Here's the lump. Jean, were you baptized in this church? No, I was baptized at another church where I was born, but this is where I grew up. Do you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin and have you ever committed your life to him? No. I don't believe there is a God. At that point, I didn't have a lump. I was just, okay, Holy Spirit, what do I say now? And then we got interrupted. One of his childhood friends came and they were reminiscing and that moment was lost. But the rest of the day I'm looking, okay, Lord, is there another moment? I've come all across the pond here. I've been praying for Jean. And it wasn't until we were actually about to leave his home. And the Holy Spirit's, you got to say something. Okay, what I say? And just kind of blurted out. I said, Jean, look. One day, Jesus Christ is going to reveal himself to you. Trust me, it's going to happen. And you're going to know when it happens. And when it happens, you need to be ready to say yes. I think that's what I said. My wife gives it a different version. She said, no, you said, there's going to come a time and Jesus is going to want you. And will you respond to him? And he said he would respond. I said, well, I'll remember that. But you get in those moments, you just got to depend on the Holy Spirit. But there'll be a little lump. Confess me before men. And you just got to power through those five seconds and see if there's a willingness to be able to. Does that make sense? Okay. We're going to talk some more about this next week. I'm going to share some more stories from the mission field from Serbia and our youth mission trip. But um, this will officially close our service.